The title of today's sermon is Trusting Rather Than Worrying. It's taken from Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34. I'm preaching through the book of Matthew, as you know, and um, today we're in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's ask God to be our teacher and guide and direct our study. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you for this section where Jesus instructs us concerning our lives and how we are to conduct ourselves as believers. Guide and direct us and speak to us, Lord, through your spirit, we would ask in Christ's name. Amen. All the while on my trip to Israel and Jordan, I found that many of my fellow travelers worried about things needlessly. Most of their anxieties were speculative in nature. For example, there was the worry about the connecting flight. Would we make it? The apprehension about suffering from jet lag when they returned home. Questions of whether or not one could make it to the top of Masada. What will the temperature be like in Israel? The truth is, most of the things that we worry about are completely out of our control. Yet we still worry about them. It's almost as though people search for things to be stressed out about. But the good news is that most of the things that we fear don't actually come to fruition. Statistics concerning worry are very revealing. Studies show that 40% of the things people worry about never occur. 30% of our worries involve past decisions that we cannot change. 12% of our worries concern criticisms from others that make us feel inadequate. 10% of our worries are about our health, which only makes our health worse. That leaves about 8% of the things that we are concerned about as being legitimate. I find that quite remarkable. Less than one out of every ten problems we focus upon and worry about are really something that we can actually affect. The truth is, we could eliminate most of the worries we have altogether if we just listen to the teaching of our Lord. Jesus tells us that he never intended for his followers to spend their time in worry. We shouldn't be concerned about the future. We shouldn't be concerned about money. We shouldn't even be concerned about having our basic needs met. Why is that? Because our Lord has promised to meet our needs. Now, the Internet Dictionary defines worry as the allowing of one's mind to dwell on difficulties and problems. A wag once said this, worry is a small trickle of fear that meanders through the mind until it cuts a channel into that which we think about and we become drained. As you might remember from our time together last week, some folks worry about accumulating enough stuff, wealth, if you will, that they worry they might not amass enough. Is it enough? They worry about gaining more and more. There never seems to be enough. However, those who have little 
or nothing of the world's goods worry about something quite different. They suffer anxiety over making ends meet, about having the basic necessities of life. Both of these worries can distract one from the real issue of this life, and that is your spiritual life. It's obvious that Jesus had both of these kinds of believers in mind as he talked to his disciples on the hill overlooking the Galilee. He had both kinds of people within his hearing. For example, John Mark's parents were quite wealthy. Barnabas owned Boku land on the island of Cyprus. Then there were the fishermen of Galilee, who you would be surprised to know were people of money. But for the most part, his followers were desperately poor and in need of daily provisions. As we begin, I'd like to remind you of Jesus' audience in this text. Despite what the film showed, verse 1 of chapter 5 tells us that he was not addressing a mass crowd of humanity. He was not addressing humankind in general. Jesus was speaking not to the crowds, but to his disciples. He was speaking directly to his disciples, not the religious elites in Jerusalem, nor even the middle class from Israel. He was speaking to those who had placed their trust in him. Jesus was teaching a small band of men and women gathered around him. He was teaching them about the deeper things of life. This sermon, so-called sermon, functions as a call for his disciples to renounce their earthly concerns and ambitions in order to trust him fully, to follow his radical teachings rather than being worried about worldly stuff. Last week, Jesus addressed loyalty, the loyalty of his followers. Would they remain faithful to him and to his agenda and to his goals? One of the things that can lead to divided loyalty is worry. It's true that every person needs the basics of life, food, drink, shelter. But the abundant life that Jesus offers will include all of those things plus much more. Well, with that as our introduction to our text this morning, would you turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 6? We pick up in verse 25, where we left off last week. You can find the text on page 963 of the Pew Bible if you need to use it. In this text, Jesus exhorts his disciples to be loyal to him and him alone. Last week, he addressed the issue of um, faithfulness and loyalty to himself. Now he, he continues on juxtaposing true righteousness with fake righteousness. As you know, he used the religious elites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all the other leaders of Israel um, as examples of fake righteousness. He used in the past the examples of giving, praying, fasting, and last week we saw acquiring wealth. Now the Lord speaks to his disciples about the attitude of trust. Last week, loyalty. This week, trust. He sets forth another example of the standard of righteousness required by God of his disciples. Looking at verse 25 with me, Jesus summarizes the previous teaching of the 
chapter 6, when he says this, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Well, let's look at this. Notice that he begins this section with the phrase in the New American Standard, for this reason. If you're using a King James Version, it might say, therefore. Jesus, by doing so, is showing the logical link between what he had to say in the previous verses to the conclusion that's found in verse 25. Let me call this the biblical principle here. He shares with his disciples the biblical principle about trusting him and being loyal to him. How important this principle is can be seen in the number of times he uses the word worry. Six times he speaks about the proclivity of his disciples to worry. Now, some of our other English translations, such as the ESV and the King James, translate the Greek word meromino, which you can see on the screen behind me, as anxiety or anxiousness rather than worry. The Greek dictionary Launida defines meromino as having an anxious concern or apprehensiveness about the possibility of danger or misfortune. To be worried or to be anxious is its basic meaning. So then, The word means to be worried about something or to be anxious about something. Jesus warns his disciples, by extension, you and me, that needless worry or anxiety changes nothing. The Greek word is written in the present tense, and it's an imperative with a negative participle. I say all that to tell you that it means to stop worrying. Stop doing what you are already doing. That is worrying. Do not worry. That's good advice for anybody, isn't it? We should stop worrying about the 92% of stuff that's out of our control. His command to stop worrying here is couched in the basics of life. I guess that kind of covers the 8% of stuff we worry about, doesn't it? The question is, why does Jesus tell his disciples who are following him, this. I think the answer is simple. If one is consumed by worry or anxiety, then you have misplaced priorities, especially when it comes to accomplishing the goals that Jesus has set forth for his disciples. We are to be kingdom seekers, and that is because we have already established a relationship with the king. We are to be loyal to the king. We are to trust in the king, and to worry about things like the basics of life can interrupt that trust and loyalty with him. So why would his disciples spend their energies on worrying about stuff that the Lord has already promised us he will give to us? Worry and anxiety are the exact opposites of faith. Jesus now shares two examples of how The Lord cares for those who are his, and by extension, all of his creation. These examples are well chosen. For Jesus is speaking to first century peoples who have a hard time supplying the basics of life. These basics are essential to survival. But Jesus promises 
that he will provide all of these provisions for us. He says, back to our text, Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink. It seems to me that today the whole world is consumed with what they will eat and drink. Just watch some of the television commercials. Many young people spare no expense in drinking just the right coffee or beer. But the Lord says we are not to worry about what we eat or drink. The point that he makes here is pretty simple. We are to have the right attitude towards food and drink. They're really not that important. Food and drink only sustain the body to accomplish the purposes that God has for us as his disciples. We are to do his will, not to worry about whether I got an Americana at Starbucks or did I have to settle for, what's the other place's name that you go to, Dave? Cutter's Point. Here you go. I go there sometimes, too. This really comes into play, and I hope I don't step on anybody's feet here, But when it comes to a church potluck, folks used to be so grateful to come to church for a potluck and just have a meal together with other people. Now, for imagine, just for a moment, just imagine yourself back in the first century, and some heathen from Galatia says to the Apostle Paul, I'd really like to come to your potluck, Paul, but I'm gluten intolerant. Now, you can feel free to substitute anything in there that you want that people are so concerned about, whether it's dairy intolerance or nuts or whatever. The list of food that's verboten at a church potluck seems endless today. It almost becomes, well, I won't say it. You can't serve peanuts any longer. You can't serve shellfish, shrimp, crayfish, lobster, crab. And don't forget about milk. Fruits, citrus fruits, strawberries, yogurts, or eggs, all of those are out. And sometimes even tomatoes. And if any meat has MSG in it, you've just committed a carnal sin. The question I always ask myself is, why can't people just come? And if they can't eat the food that's there, bring their own. The point of the potluck is not the food. The point of the potluck is not the food. Well, do I need to bring out the signs again that say amen? (laughs) The point of the potluck is not the food, it's the fellowship. Getting together with brothers and sisters in Christ and sharing a meal to talk about Jesus and how he's working in your life and how wonderful he is. That's the point of the potluck. I can't tell you how many times I've been told by people, I can't come to the potluck because I can't eat the food there. I want to have a coronary and drop over. Jesus tells us to trust in him for the abundant life, and he will provide those things that are necessary for us. In three of the verses in this short text, Jesus instructs his disciples not to worry. Three times in verses 25, 31, and 34. In verse 25, he points out that worry is totally unnecessary. In verse 31, his point is that worry is totally unworthy of his disciples. And then finally, in verse 34, Jesus says that worry is completely unprofitable. 
The command here is not to worry. Do not let worry or human concerns rule your life. Now, he's not forbidding disciples to work. It's not that you shouldn't work to earn money in order to buy the basics necessities of life. No, because other scriptures tell us that if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. The point here is that it's not to become our priority and overshadow his priorities. Life isn't about what you will eat or drink. Life is about serving and loving our Lord. The second illustration he uses here is about clothing or what you will put on. Clearly, he warns us about the tendency in life to focus on things around us and our creature comforts. First it was food and drink, and now it's clothing. If we focus on those things, we will miss out on living the abundant life of knowing the deeper meaning of the spiritual life. When we worry about those things, like what we will eat or drink or wear, we deny, in a sense, that he cares for us and that he's provided for us. We act as though he doesn't know what we need. In a sense, we're denying the power of the Lord to provide those things we need rather than those things, as Dave prayed this morning, the things that we want. This type of worry can cause one to put all of his energies, all of his time, into making sure that we have enough of what we want. However, before you even realize it, your life will have passed you by, and the opportunity to serve the Lord in a meaningful way and to experience the deeper abundant life will have passed you by because you will have spent all your time and energies on gathering wealth. Your loyalties will be divided and your trust will be misplaced. It will be on self rather than the Lord. Jesus asks us the question which I want each of you to ask yourselves this morning. Is not life more than food? Now this is written in the Greek in a way that it expects a yes answer. Life is more than food and drink, is it not? And then he says, Is not the body more than clothing? Yes. Now, I want you to have some clothes on. Come on. All right? He's not saying don't eat or don't drink and don't wear clothes. He's saying that trust the Lord. He will provide it for you. Today, there's a a sense in our society and our culture that surrounds us that you have to have the right clothing. Don't you tire of Yahoo and and their pictures of some actress wearing some stupid gown? Every week they got the things on there. You know, somebody on the red carpet, doesn't she look beautiful? I don't care anything about her and her clothing. Do you? I really don't. It doesn't matter to me what some social elite's wearing in Hollywood. We are not to be so consumed that we follow them. You know, the Bible teaches specific things about how we're to dress, about how we're to conduct ourselves with the outward appearance. Women are to dress modestly. Boy, you don't see much modesty in our culture today, do you? Food is for the sustaining of physical life, and clothing is to keep you warm and safe. 
Jesus instructs us that life is more than food and clothing. And he shares two practical examples from nature that make this crystal clear. Look with me at verse 26, where he says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow. They do not reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? The first illustration is that of the birds of the air. Jesus was probably teaching and he looked up and a bird flew over and he pointed to it or maybe a whole flock of birds. The birds are preaching to us how unnecessary it is for us to worry. Isn't that awesome? Jesus, the master teacher, just looks around and uses things as object lessons all the time. Here's the birds of the air which preach to us that the Lord cares for us. He takes care of those things that we need. Why? Because he's our loving, heavenly Father. Jesus uses that same phrase here twice in this text. He is our loving, heavenly Father who cares for us. If he cares for the birds of the air, creatures that are kind of meaningless, really, to most people, don't you think he will care for you? The point is obvious. God provides the disciples' needs without them doing a thing. The first big government redistribution of wealth was when God provided his creatures the basics of life without raising taxes. Isn't that awesome? Notice Jesus is using a rabbinical hermeneutical device here. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He does that by saying, are you not worth more than they? And the obvious expected answer is yes. I don't think the SPCA would like that, do you? You're worth more than any whale. You're worth more than any spotted owl. You're worth more than any seal, any bird of the air, because God placed within you his divine image. They're just animals. Disciples of Jesus... All people, everywhere, are worth more than any bird or animal. God says, if he takes care of the little birds, won't he take care of you? Now, people are worth more than birds. Did you know that you are so valuable to God that Christ died for you? Jesus Christ came and gave his life so that you might have real life. He suffered a cruel death in your place that you might experience the abundant life. Now, the biblical text warns us that it's not a sin to be apprehensive, to be concerned about things. It's a sin to worry. It's a sin to have anxiety. But we are to trust God in and through all the difficulties that will come into our life. As a kid growing up in Chicago, I grew up in a lower middle class home in Chicago. In fact, I just had on my phone this morning a uh, update from Zillow. Anybody have Zillow on their phones? Yeah. And it was my parents' home that I grew up in was for sale. And uh, it said, an 894-square-foot home for sale. Me and my three brothers grew up in an 894-square-foot home. Can you imagine that today? 
But you know what? I never worried about anything. I never had a care about food. I never had a care about something to drink or the clothes that I would wear because my earthly father provided them. How much more will your heavenly father care for you because he loves you, because he cares for you, he will provide for you. Jesus asked the question in verse 27, and who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Why worry and fret? Why spend all that energy about nonsense, about how cluttered your house is, or how little your house is, or how big your house is, or how, about, how much stuff you have? Why worry about that nonsense? Live for Jesus Christ and put him first. He's provided for you. Worry is utterly fruitless. Now, some folks have made an issue out of the Greek word that is used in verse 27. It's pekios. You can see it on the screen behind you. And it's uh, found in uh, uh, Spiros of Adidas's, uh, lexicon. Uh, he helps us understand its meaning. The Greek word that's used there is cubit, which is brought over from the Hebrew. And as you know, that was a standard of measurement in the Old Testament. It was the length between a man's elbow and the middle finger, uh, the greatest length that, uh, of the fingers there. And it usually came to be about 18 inches long. Well, there was also a royal cubit in the Old Testament, which was a measurement that was used for the construction of the temple, and it equaled 21 inches long. So the idea that uh, is under discussion by many scholars is, does this refer to a measurement of length, or does it, as some interpret it, mean a measurement of time? It can be understood as why worry about one cubit, to add to your stature, or a single hour to your life. So that's kind of the discussion that goes on with this verse. But we should not miss the point here, and that is you can't add, a short person can't add 18 to 21 inches to their stature, can they? And no person could add one hour to their life, except for maybe Hezekiah. So the metaphor is that we can't change who we are or the length of our days. It's hyperbole that the Lord is using here. You can't grow taller. You can't change the amount of time that you have to live. That's the point that we should not miss. Why? It's a silly thing to do. It's a silly thing to worry about because the Lord loves you. Our Heavenly Father cares for you. Now look with me at verse 28 where it changes the metaphor. Why are you worried about your clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow, and they do not toil, nor do they spin. He again looks around in the uh, environment, and he points to an object lesson from nature to share with his disciples. He points to the lilies or some flower that's growing there, and he says, God provided the lilies with this beautiful clothing, and they have done nothing to earn it. God provides the flowers by clothing them in these wonderful petals and leaves. That's the idea. Once again, Jesus uses the rabbinical argument from the lesser to the greater to show how God cares for you. If he dresses up the lilies or the flowers in this manner, 
How much more will he take care of you? That's the idea of what's going on here. God loves you so much that he takes care of your basic needs. Now, we tend to worry about clothing, don't we? We tend to worry about the types of jeans we're going to wear, if they have the right label on it, or the eyeglasses that we wear, if they're the right shapes and shades and all that other stuff. We even worry about where our clothes are made. At least the liberals do. You know, when they're worried about the downtrodden peoples in the third world countries, right, that are toiling and spinning for Ivanka Trump and Walmart making the clothes for them. Uh, At least that's what the, the mainstream media wants you to believe. Why is that? Why is it that our clothes are made in China and South America? It's because Americans don't want to work in sweatshops, right? Nobody wants to work in factories where you work your fingers to the bone, uh, toiling and spinning. We'd rather work on a computer and sit, a, sit, a, sit behind a screen and drinking coffee. All oh, I stopped talking about my life. Uh, but it's amazing today what you can do. We can just get on our computer and dial up Amazon, right? Click a button, and then two days later, those new clothes show up for us. Why are we so worried about what we wear? I've actually served churches where I was told that I needed to wear certain kinds of clothes. Here at Lacey Chapel, they told me I need to wear Hawaiian shirts. Why do we worry about what we eat and drink and wear? Verse 29, Jesus says, Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed themselves like one of these. Jesus speaking to Jews who had Solomon and their hierarchy of people that they loved and respected because of what he did for the nation of Israel, he raised it to its height of power and glory and was a rich man beyond belief, according to the scriptures, the richest man that ever lived. Not Bill Gates. Not what's the guy's name at Amazon? Bezos or something? He should change his name. Uh, But Solomon was the richest man that ever lived, and it was... This man that Jesus chooses to say, God will clothe you even better than him. He clothes the lilies better. Won't he clothe you? He makes the comparison in verse 30 of the clothes saying, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, and throws it into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? Yes? Yes? You have little faith. You're going to Amazon to get your clothes, aren't you? You don't want to go to Walmart because that would take effort. You'd have to get out of the car and go pick it up and then go through the cash register and drive home, right? Just go to Amazon as he takes over the world. Here we find the use of time in verse 30, which kind of gives us the understanding, the conclusion that the use of cubit in the previous verse also was about time rather than length. But that's here and there. Jesus uses the word if here in the beginning of statement found in verse 30. But if God. That word if is a first class conditional clause. Now don't glaze over in your eyes, okay? 
It's important. Grammar is important. That tells us this is a conditional statement, and because it's a first-class conditional clause by the way that it's stated, it could be translated as since, a conclusion. So it would then read this way. Since God clothes the grass of the fields in such a grand way, now I look outside and I see our brown lawn. It's not so grand. But back then they used the brown grass that had died because of no rain, for fuel to light their fires. And he says it. If he's clothed the grass of the field in such a grand way, but tomorrow that you're used to fuel the fire, won't he take care of your needs even more? Again, a metaphor. Arguing from the lesser to the greater. The ancients would take the old, dry, dead grass, throw it into their ovens to start the baking process. The question is, aren't you disciples of mine more value than the beautiful grass? Won't God take care of your needs? But they're like you and me. They trusted in self rather than in the Lord. That's why he says, you of little faith. You of little confidence in me. Don't you trust my provision or are you trusting in yourself? In your se- in yourself? Paul reminds us about this in Romans chapter 14 when he says, whatever is not a faith is sin. Jesus uses that phrase, ye of little faith, in a way to question the disciples' trust in his provision. Do you trust him? Really? Can you demonstrate that from your life? Seriously? I don't think Jesus was taking a slap at his disciples as he tells them that they have little faith. I think Jesus was sort of putting his arm around them to encourage them to look upward rather than inward. He uses this phrase often as a term of endearment for people rather than a term of scolding them. He uses it in two other places in Matthew, in fact. Jesus says to his disciples, why are you afraid when they're out in the waters, remember? And the water's coming into the boat? You men of little faith. He then rebuked the winds and the seas and made everything right. He provided, didn't he? Peace from the storm. And again, Jesus said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Directly related to this, Christ provides, even for 4,000 and 5,000 at one time. The phrase then was used by our Lord about doubting the provisions of God. Notice with me in verse 31. Do not worry then. Yeah, there you go. Don't worry then about what we shall eat, what we will drink, or what we will wear. Again, the, ram- the grammar here is very helpful. He uses a, a negative aorist subjunctive, and you can look that up when you go home if you'd like, which means do not begin to worry. Trust in his provision. When we take on the task of providing for ourselves without trusting the care of our Heavenly Father, we demonstrate that we really don't trust him. We disavow his promises to provide for us. We should never do this. For when we do, 
we are behaving like someone that we shouldn't. Look with me at verse 32. For the Gentiles, he behaved like the Gentiles. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly father, he uses it again there, knows that you need all of these things. When we try to take life into our own hands, when we think we can provide for ourselves better than we can provide, than the Lord can provide for us, we are pasting, placing our trust in self just like a pagan. And when you do that, you're focusing on the accumulation of stuff, of wealth. The term Gentiles here, you know what the Jews call Gentiles, don't you? Dogs. So this would speak clearly to his audience. When you do that, says Jesus' disciples, you're acting just like a pagan. Stop it. Don't even begin going there. Why? Because they had been so blessed They've been so blessed. They've been given the Torah, the temple, the priesthood, and this divine assurance that God would provide for them. They were to understand that their advantages made them quite different than the Gentiles. The Gentiles can't help but worry. But you, you have all the advantages in the world. You should trust God. To worry about money, to worry about the basics of life, is to act just like an unbeliever. That's what pagans were. It's a complete waste of time. Since your heavenly Father, says Jesus, knows what you need, to worry is fruitless. A fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ has been freed from worry and anxiety, which characterizes the lost. Such behavior is sourced in the flesh. Those believers who obsess over their health, those believers who obsess over food and drink, those believers who obsess over clothing are fleshly and carnal. As I said previously, many disciples... I find are overly concerned with their diets, their fats, their carbohydrates, the clothes they wear. Does this look right? Is this good enough to go? That's so sad, isn't it? It's so sad. Because that's how unbelievers conduct themselves. So what's the answer to fleshly behavior? How can the disciples focus on the inner man rather than the outer man. We have an appeal here, the appeal by Jesus in verse 33. Seek first his kingdom. Well, I want to be dressed right when I go to the kingdom. I want to look fit when I am in Jesus's presence, so I think I need to worry about my weight. I need to get a personal trainer and work out. I mean, I want to look great for when I meet Jesus, impress him, right? No, come on. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you, says the Lord. There's the answer. Does this promote the kingdom of God or not? Me spending hours at Kohl's looking for just the right outfit, is that really productive for the kingdom of God? Now, I don't know if it is or not. Maybe it is. I don't know. I'm just suggesting. Do you ever walk down the the Isles of Winco. Imagine you're a missionary that's been in Bolivia like our brothers and sisters, the Mans have. And they come back after three years 
in Bolivia with not much to choose, and they walk through the aisles of Winco. What do you think they think? These Americans. Uh, you know, they're Canadian. These Americans, they're so pampered. So many choices. How do you even get through life? How do you get through Winco and make choices? There's 18 different kinds of wheat. What is that stuff? The Wheaties? The English word here, seek, is from the Greek term zeeto, which is a present tense imperative, and you can see it on the screen behind me. Jesus says to disciples that they are to continually to obsess, to seek, to strive after his kingdom's purposes, and then to be blameless, to be righteous. This is not an option, my dear ones. It's a command. If you are not experiencing the abundant life here and now, it's because you are not seeking that which is above. You are seeking that which is earthly and fleshly. As his disciples, we've pledged ourselves to our king. We've pledged to keep and seek his goals. We've pledged to live out his purposes to advance his kingdom. But you can't do that if you're worrying and filled with anxiety over about the necessities of life or what clothing you're going to wear. So stop worrying and stop fretting. Stop that behavior and put on a positive attitude of striving after his purposes and his goodness. Jesus says, if you will put my interest first in your life, I will guarantee your future needs and you'll never lack the necessities of life. I believe this functions as a summary statement for all of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6. Seek first his kingdom. Not second, not third, not tenth, first. What house you buy, what job you work at, what car you purchase, what vacations you take, seek first his kingdom. Now look at your little lives and tell me that you've done this every time. You know you have not. Seek first. You want the abundant life? You want to be filled with the peace of God? Seek first his kingdom. Quit seeking after your selfish wants. Whoa, that's pretty strong, Pastor. It's just the way it is, guys. You want to know why your lives are miserable, falling apart, and you're crabby all the time? It's because you're seeking your kingdom and not his. True? Then get it together. Scott, get it together. I'm speaking to me just as much as I'm speaking to you. This is a call for his disciples to put him first in everything. Trust him and show your, lo- your loyalty to him in every area and concern of life. And stop worrying about nonsense. By the way, none of that was in my sermon. The, first, the word first points to the overriding concern we should have in our life for his goals and his purposes and his kingdom. Do you want to be a man of God, a woman of God, or do you want to live like a pagan? That's the question that's being raised here. It's up to you. It's always up to you. It's your choice. 
Every decision that you make in this life will be weighed at the judgment seat of Christ. Every thought you have will be reviewed at the Bema. How you live this life here and now will affect your life there and then. Do you really think about that? Seek first his kingdom. Put God first. Our number one priority is discipleship. Not money, not food, not clothing. Those are just fleshly distractions that will make us totally ineffective in this life. It doesn't matter where you live or how your house looks or what kind of car you drive or what your job is. You can please the Lord in all of these things if you put him first. It's not America first. It's not make America great again. It's make the kingdom of God great again. The kingdom of God first. Now, I know what MAGA means, and I have some agreement with that. But there's no promise from Donald Trump or from the Republicans to to give all of these things to us as Jesus promises. He says, I will give you your basics, and all of these things will be added unto you. We can either choose to be loyal and trustworthy of our God, our Heavenly Father, or not. We make that choice. Now, Jesus began this discourse by pointing to the bankruptcy of all human beings. We have no righteousness in and of our own. Even our best attitudes and actions will not procure his righteousness for us. Righteousness comes as a gift from God's grace. Paul wrote this, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show his surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. His promise is that he will meet all of our needs. All we need to do is trust him and walk in harmony, loyalty with him. He's speaking now, though, to believers in the old dispensation. Under the law, the Mosaic law. Did you know that the first reference to receiving the righteousness of God comes in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6? God speaking to the first Jewish man. Who is that? Abraham. And how he will grant him his righteousness. Listen to this. Abraham believed the Lord and God accredited to him as righteousness. Paul confirms this in Romans chapter 4 when he says, if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but to what is due. 
But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. There it is. He continues. How was it credited? When he was circumcised or uncircumcised? No. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. When he received the sign of the circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had been while under circumcision, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be accredited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of faith of the father Abraham which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. There it is. For if those who are under the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there is also no violation. For this reason, it is by faith. In order to be in accordance with faith, so that the promise will be guaranteed to the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of faith in Abraham, who the father of us all is. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him who believed, even God who gives life to the dead, calls them into being which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed, so that he might become the father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving God the glory and being fully assured that God had promised he was able to perform. Therefore, therefore, it was accredited to him as righteousness. The New Testament makes it clear that the righteousness of God is received exactly the same way as it was received by the Jews, by faith in God's promises. In our case, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way one becomes a kingdom seeker. In Romans chapter 3, we read this. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For therefore there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is by Christ Jesus. We are told to seek his righteousness It's not hidden under a rock like some people make it out to be. It is clearly spoken of in the word of God. Righteousness is found only in Jesus Christ. It's not found in your good works. Your good works are like filthy rags unto the Lord. When we seek his lordship in our life and allow him to control our lives, when we yield to the principles of the word of God, We receive the righteousness of God. I'm reminded of what Jesus said to Peter. He said, you have followed me in the regeneration. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Everyone who has left homes 
or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake, if heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so we will also be glorified with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds unto the end, to him I will give my authority, there's a reward, over the nations as I have received authority from my Father. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Why worry about clothes, food, drink? Serve the Lord. Seek him first, and all of these things will be added unto you. Reigning with Christ when he comes. Reigning over cities and nations. Like I tell you often, my goal is to be mayor of Lacey. Straighten it out. Jesus' conclusion? Verse 35. Verse 34. So do not worry about tomorrow. Oh, i got to prepare for 20 years down the road when I'm going to retire. Oh, that's a year from now. Too late. How many people are consumed, including believers, with their retirement? Don't worry about tomorrow, says Jesus, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Isn't that the truth? A lot of you amened at that when it was in the film. The final reason why we should not worry is that it's a worthless way to spend our time and effort because each new day is going to bring its own difficulties. Why borrow from tomorrow's difficulties today? Why worry about what's going to happen tomorrow when you've got enough trouble today? That's what Jesus is saying. Why worry about the hypothetical? It's fruitless. It's worthless. So stop Worrying. Let me suggest several ways in which we can take what his, his disciples hear about worry and anxiety and turn it around to trust in him. First, we are to pray that God will help us to stop worrying. It's not easy to stop worrying, is it? It feels really good to worry, doesn't it? Like you're actually doing something about something. But it's actually very unfruitful. So pray that God will help you to stop worrying. If you want a verse to memorize, think about Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, which says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You don't have to worry. Pray about it, and God will give you peace. You don't need to be filled with anxiety in the cares of this world about tomorrow. Trust God and show it through prayer, and you will experience his peace. Secondly, be thankful. Be thankful for what you have, not what you don't have. Oh, we're so worried about what we don't have or what somebody else has got. fills us with anxiety that our life isn't what we would hoped it would be. But be thankful for what you have. The verse I just quoted from Philippians. Paul says to be thankful in every aspect of your life. To not to be thankful is to be sinful. Thirdly, Paul instructs us in the same verse to think on good things. 
When you are worried or anxious, you're thinking on the negative rather than the positive. In the same passage in Romans, uh, Philippians chapter 4, two verses later, in verse 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. What's your, what's your mind dwelling on? The negative possibilities of life? What if I come down with cancer? Or what if my grandchild gets run over in the street because he keeps running out into it? All these different possibilities and hypotheticals that we raise. What if my husband loses his job? Or whatever you want to fill in that blank with. Why worry about those things? Think on things that are good for you. Our minds are not to be under the control of evil, wicked thoughts, but under the control of the good and profitable word of God. Paul instructs us to think about godly, virtuous things. When we focus on the positive, good things will happen. Allow the Holy Spirit to give you peace. Pray, be thankful, dwell on good things, and allow the Holy Spirit to use those to give you the peace of God which passes all understanding. Most non-Christians don't understand us, do they? How you can have peace in the midst of the storm? It's because I know Christ. Because I'm his. And he provides for me my needs in whatever situation that might come. May that be your aim this week and in the year to come and throughout the rest of your life. Trust him. Be loyal to him. And remember, he has your best at heart and will provide for you. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the teaching of Jesus. Help us as your disciples, Lord, to take it to heart. To be loyal to our Savior. To trust him, even in the darkest days of life. Help us put Christ first. Help us to seek him first and his righteousness, we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen.